I'm going to be reading from Judges 6, 12 through 17, 36 through 40, and then 7, 1 through 22. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon replied, If you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Then Gideon said to God, If you are truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. I will put a wool fleece in the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. And that is just what happened. When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out a whole bowlful of water. Then Gideon said to God, Please don't be angry with me, but let me make one more request. Let me use the fleece for one more test. This time, let the fleece remain dry while the ground, while the ground around it is wet with dew. So that night, God did as Gideon asked. The fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered with dew. So Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Harad. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. Tonight we're going to move into what Rachel just read and talk about three things. Mistrust, reassurance, and following God. Let's pray. Lord, these are the words of life. Ancient words recorded for our cutting-edge lives and situations. This, what Rachel just read and what we will talk about now, we remember it is directly from your voice, from your mouth, and into our ears. We would ask you to bring it all the way into our hearts. We have meager resources. We are ill-equipped. We have a hundred obstacles between us and hearing your voice. And so what you did with meager resources for and through Gideon, would you do tonight? We need you and we want you. We want to see your face. We want to hear your voice. We want to be refreshed by your presence. So would you do what must be done tonight? Do work in us, Father. Do work in us, Jesus. Do work in us, Spirit, that we might be brought nearer to you. We ask in your name and for your sake. Amen. Do you remember a few weeks ago when I asked you if you knew anybody that you would follow at the drop of the hat? Someone that you would charge any hill with? Um, You'd get out of bed with a 3 a.m. call if they said, hey, we're going to go do this or we've got to do this. It could have been a coach. It could have been a mentor. It could have been... uh, whoever, a parent, an older friend, an older brother, an older sister. 
but it was somebody that inspired such confidence in you that you just automatically followed them. You feel safe when they're there. You feel secure when they're around. They're like the adults in the room. And there's just kind of this unquestioning following of anywhere they're going. And you have no doubt that they're committed to you. No doubt that they have your back. I want to add one question to what I asked you a few weeks ago. Did Jesus come to your mind when I asked you that a few weeks ago? Is he the kind of person that you'd go anywhere with just because he's there? Is he the kind of person that just inspires just a stiffened spine and a quick foot in you? You'd go anywhere, you'd do anything just because he's there. He's so sure of himself. He's so ruthlessly committed to you and you know it. He's for you. you are, you're safe when he's there. Does he come to mind when you hear the question or think the thought, who's that platoon leader you'd run toward bullets with? Is Jesus one of those people? It's weird when I ask the question to myself. Sometimes, yeah. A lot of times, no. It struck me a few weeks ago when I asked it of you. I wasn't thinking of him when I asked it. I was thinking of all the people in my life. And I shared a few stories of people in my life that they just, they were a magnet. And he didn't come to mind. And I wonder if he doesn't come to your minds as often either. And it started raising this question in me. How is that possible? How is it possible that I can be so unswervingly committed to people who've led me well? And so, kind of, without much confidence, committed to the one who's loved me best and led me best, unsteadily committed to him. Why the mistrust that we often feel towards God? Why the hesitancy for him to come first to mind when we ask the question, is he one of those people you follow anywhere, go anywhere with, run into bullets with, or for, charge any hill? I think the way, the reason that this happens in our lives is we confuse two things that we're both inside of. We confuse the scene that we're in in our life and the story that we're in in our life. God's put us in a scene, which is whatever present circumstances you're in right now, but he's also put you in a story. And it's a, it's a salvation story. Uh, even if you're not a Christian, your life is happening inside of what the Bible calls the day of salvation. It's this missionary age where God has literally, if you're here tonight, this is literal for you. He has sent his church to your doorstep with grace in its hands, with welcome and hospitality in its hands and an invitation and a call for you in its hands. And so even if you're not a Christian in this room, your life is taking place inside of human history, which God defines as a redemption story. And especially if you're a Christian, your life is happening inside of an epic movie, an epic story of redemption. But especially when we're going through hard stuff, confusing stuff, stuff that gets you stuck in your head, analysis, paralysis, times of life or situations that have happened that leave you wondering what's going on, what does all this mean? When we get into those places or the things you think you need to be happy or to push on, are in scarce supply, 
that's when we just kind of get this myopia, this blindness, and all we can see is the present scene that we're in. And we see that scene so well that we don't see the story anymore. Now, here's the thing. If you're in a scene and you know it's momentary and quickly passing in a small part of a bigger story, you can endure it. We do this all the time. Graphic movies or scary movies and you cover your eyes. Not for the whole rest of the movie, just for a few seconds, right? Until the danger has passed or whatever you didn't want to see has passed. You can endure a scene when you know it's momentary. But when you forget that the scene is momentary and you think that it's the story, the way things are now or the way they're always going to be for me now, then we get into great danger and mistrust begins to grow in our hearts and even towards God. And it's a lot harder in real life than in the movies, right? Because our lives are not hour and a half little sagas. They're 88 year long stories. Oftentimes, right? And you in particular might be stuck in a scene right now that seems like the never ending freshman year. You feel like you did in September and everybody said it was supposed to change in January. You're supposed to find your friends. You're supposed to lighten up and This is supposed to feel like home, but it doesn't feel like home for you anymore. And you're wondering, how long does this scene last? Is this the story? Some of you are single and you're about to graduate and you're wondering, is this scene my story now forever? This is the way it's going to be. Some of you are in a season of depression. You're in a season of anxieties you've never dealt with before. And you're wondering, is the scene the story? Is this the way it's ever going to be? Some of you are asking intense questions right now of where is God and what is he doing in the world, in my life, in my family? And you're wondering, is the scene, the story? Is this the epic now? Is this the scene that I'm stuck in? Gideon gives voice to this. Gideon asks this question. And I think Gideon makes this observation. It's in verse 13. He says, but if the Lord is with us, That's the story. The story of God's relationship with his people is one of solidarity and loyalty. Not because we did anything to earn it, but because of who he is. I am with you is the banner over his people. And Gideon is now questioning the narrative, the epic plot line, the story that his life is happening inside of and Israel. God's people's lives are happening inside of. And he says, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this stuff happened to us? the Midianite oppression for seven years and all that that brought, the economic starvation, the famine, the loss of 10 months of work every single year for seven years in a row. Why has this stuff happened to us if the Lord is with us? And where are all the miracles that our ancestors told us about? The scene that Gideon is in, the scene that the people of God are in is eclipsing the story. And they're wondering, have the credits rolled on God's best work in our lives? Are the credits rolling and all the deliverance, all the grace, all the him showing up and transforming and changing and being with me in a way that mattered? Is that all past tense now? Is the scene now the story? And it's blinding not just the story out, but it's blocking and blinding God out too. And they're becoming less and less able to see him. Hear me in this, that we have to interpret the scene that God's put you in right now through the story that he's put you in. 
you have to interpret the scene that he's put you in right now, the circumstances he's put you in right now, the place he has you in right now, through the story he has you in right now. And I'll even say this to those of you in the room who don't know where you are with God or know you're not with God and maybe even know you don't like him. You're in the room tonight and you're hearing him bend over backwards to talk to you and to ask you to reconsider. We must interpret the scene that God's put us in through the story that he's put us in, not the other way around. Danger lies that way if you interpret the story that you're in through the scene that you're in. This is the annoying roommate, the classic annoying roommate who in the middle of this epic movie that you're watching on a rainy Thursday afternoon comes in to make her dinner and she sees like two scenes in the movie. She's like, is that the bad guy? Oh, did he kill so-and-so? What's happening? And you're like, leave, please leave right now because you're ruining the movie. All you've seen is two minutes and you're trying to interpret the story through the scene, right? We know in a minute that doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work in our lives either. We take intense, legitimately intense, genuinely intense. I'm not minimizing the pain or the confusion or the agony of the scene that some of you might be in. But I'm saying don't interpret the story through it. Because if you do, the hero of the story himself will be edited out. And all of the deliverance will too. Again, this is what we see from Gideon. This is why Gideon asks the question right after what I've already told you. He said, you know, he said first in verse uh, 13. He says, if the Lord is with us, why has all this stuff happened to us? Why is the scene so bad, so seemingly godless? Where are the miracles? And then he answers his question or he asks another question that has a lot more baggage attached to it. And he says, has the Lord abandoned to Has the Lord abandoned us? He's taking present circumstances and extrapolating that to all of his life and all of God's people's lives. And he's saying the story is ruined. He's interpreting his whole life through what's happening right this moment. And here's what happens next when we do this and all of us do this. When we begin to interpret the story of redemption through the scene that you happen to be in at the moment and it edits God out and it edits his grace out and his presence and even his mysterious workings, what happens is we, come, we become introspective. We kind of go into that orphan mode that we've talked a lot about. And the go-it-alone mode, the rogue mode, the off-the-grid mode, where we kind of turn in on ourselves and we start scrutinizing ourselves. We've concluded, perhaps, God has abandoned me or, more politely, has God abandoned me? But you can't sit under that question mark forever and just take a pass on life Life keeps going. You got to get up the next day and keep going. And so we do. And then we start not scrutinizing God. We start scrutinizing ourselves. We've assumed he's not here or he's indifferent. So now I'm looking inside of myself for the wherewithal to get through whatever scene I'm in. To get through the next scene. To see the page turn on this. And so you start looking at your resources, your abilities, your experience, your likelihood for success in getting through whatever you're going through. And because we see such scarcity in ourselves and lack of resources, we either shut down, we retreat altogether, or we kind of naively plod forward, thinking we're actually up for the task. Again, we see this in the passage. God has promised to Gideon, I'm sending you, I'm with you, Gideon, I'm for you, Gideon, I'm going to go before you. 
You fighting the Midianite army is going to be like fighting one soldier. I am the Lord and I'm with you. What Gideon heard is, how can I rescue Israel? Gideon's turned in on himself. Gideon is now scrutinizing himself. Do I have what it takes to get through this? He says, my clan is the weakest and I'm the weakest in my clan. I'm from a clan full of runts and I'm the runt of the runts. How am I going to pull this off? This deliverance that God said he was going to pull off. Now Gideon is losing sleep wondering how I am going to pull this off. And this is the, the pattern. This is where things go when we interpret our story through our scene. And God and his grace and his deliverance and his presence and his goodness and his power. And his attention fixed on his people gets edited out. We go into orphan mode and we do these things. And so, for example, I just picked a couple. We hear things like 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God for you. God's saying to you, Christian, this is my will for you. This is my desire for you. Your sanctification, your purity, your growth in Jesus. And he says after that, that you would abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you would know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. But we say, feeling abandoned to our own resources taking the intense, 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 intense scene that we're in as a 20-year-old right now and what your body is doing and what culture is doing, and we extrapolate this scene to all time and we immediately grow demoralized, immediately defeated, immediately hope disappears from the picture. I prayed that this would go away, but it hasn't. God must be indifferent, must be deaf. I must be doing something wrong. And we go into orphan mode And we start looking inside of ourselves and some of us try, and that's dangerous, try out of our own steam to beat these things. Some of us give up, throw in the towel, and that's dangerous. Some of us grow defeated and demoralized, and that's dangerous. And in all of this, we've forgotten that God is bigger than the enemies that you and I face inside of us and around us. And we forget that he's more committed to you than you are committed to your idols, And we lose the hope that is in that equation right there. Having lost confidence in God because we've misinterpreted our circumstances and extrapolated them everywhere we turn inward. And we know we don't have what it takes to move forward. First Peter, I'll just throw one more at you. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything God says to his people by prayer and supplication, cast these things on me, present your request to me. But the scene you feel stuck in right now is organic chemistry. Your grades are in free fall. Your career is in free fall. Your internships are in free fall. No future for you. And it's just, you just have a pit right here. That's just like the the bottom dropped out from your stomach. Because you're seeing any hope of the life you wanted or the future that you wanted seem to fall out from under you having lost confidence in God and wondering if he's abandoned us inside of this scene, if the credits are rolling in the story, if this is the way it's always going to be, if this temporary suffering is now permanent suffering. We go rogue, we turn inward, and we wonder, do I have what it takes to get through this? And we come to the same conclusion Gideon does. I'm from from a, a family of weaklings, and I'm the weakest of the weaklings. And some of this gets kind of putrefied into self-hatred in our minds or just compulsively beating yourself up. So what do you do in these situations? What do you do when we fall into these situations where we confuse scene and story? 
And we start to interpret all of our life and all of God's dealings with his people throughout history through what's going on in your life right now. When mistrust has gone viral, what do we do? Well, that's our second point, reassurance. We seek his reassurance of who he is, of how he works with his people, of how he leads his people, of how he loves his people. We come to him as we are. Gideon in this particular episode, in six, what we talked about last week and in seven, Gideon is seeking signs that the director of his story is who he says he is. That's what Gideon is really after, is the one who is directing this story and this scene really who he says he is? Is he who I thought he was? And I think, let me tell you, Gideon is asking something very differently than what you and I are often asking when we kind of seek a sign from God or say, Lord, give me a sign fundamentally different. I'm not going to beat the dead horse after we talked about this last week, but hit it from another angle. Gideon is asking something fundamentally different than we often ask. We often ask God, tell me what to do. Show me the future. Make the decision for me. And I told you last week, I bet I've beat you. I bet I'm worse at that than you, but we all do it. When we seek signs and reassurance from God, what we want is to peek around the blind curve and know what's coming next. But that's not what Gideon is doing, I think, here. Gideon is saying to the Lord, show me you in my future, which is very, very different than show me my future. Show me you in the story again. I've lost sight of you. Show me you in this scene. I can't see you and I'm scared. And he's saying, show me who you are. Remind me that you're the hero. I've lost sight and my faith is weak. Gideon is asking story questions and movie questions of God. And he's wanting reassurance of the story that he has been wrapped into. And he says in verse 17, show me that it's really you speaking to me. I heard the story a while back of a middle-aged man and his wife. And he, the, the husband was diagnosed with early-onset dementia. And pretty early on in the diagnosis, the doctors sit down with him and his wife, and they go through this just agonizing litany of symptoms that are probably going to start hitting soon. And the, the heartbreaking thing about it is they had a lot of road left in front of them, a lot of life left to live as a middle-aged married couple. This particular husband and wife, their thing was dancing. They always loved to dance. It's how they met. Whenever they're at their weddings, they were the people everybody talked about, dancing on the floor at the reception. They would dance at home in the living room when a favorite song came on. So as the symptoms advanced, and they both know what's coming, the husband and the wife make a pact with each other. And the husband says to his wife, If there ever comes a day that I can't recognize you or know what's going on and I get scared, the way I'll know that you're you, that I'm with someone I can trust, that I'm with someone who knows me, is that we'll dance. That's how I'll know it's you. When Gideon asks God to show him a sign, Gideon is saying, I've forgotten who you are. But he's saying, 
dance. Dance with me. That I'll know that I'm with one who knows me, one who is for me, one who is with me, one that I have history with, one that I have relationship with. In his forgetfulness, in his myopia, in his inability to see the story anymore or the hero of the story anymore or where this story began in grace or how the story ends in grace. Gideon is doing something different than you and I do when we ask for signs. Gideon is asking for this God that he loves and he knows to dance with him again because Gideon has forgotten. And again, back to us. When I seek clarity, the big life decisions, what major, what to do after graduation, what city to move to, do the internship, don't, what seminary to go to, what job to take after, come back to Athens, stay in New Mexico, all of these things. When I pray for clarity or have wanted clarity so often, what I have wanted to do is hack the mind of God and leak the files of my future, right? And friends, you've got to see the difference. What Gideon is doing and what we do are fundamentally different. What we are asking God in those moments is not to have God, but to be God. To have his secret knowledge. To have the files, have the data, have the decisions. Gideon is asking to dance with one he loves but has lost sight of. And we often ask for files. Friends, the way to reassurance, the way out of mistrust, is to learn to dance again. Or to begin to pray for the Lord to dance with you again. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is something that if you grew up in certain denominations, you've probably heard a lot of. God, uh, Moses is kind of reminding the people of this God and the story that they've been in since the beginning, right before they pass into this promised land that Gideon is fighting for here. And he's, it's, in the, it's in the context of this covenant that we've been talking about all semester, this stretchy thing, this stretchy love of God that gets stretched and stretched and stretched. And in some supernatural, miraculous way, just doesn't break. And you're like, what is this stuff made of? It is in that context of covenant that Moses tells the people of God, the secret things of God belong to God. But the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law, which is saying this. God has told you some things and he has withheld other things. And we are to major on what he has revealed to us, what he has told us. What he has told you is who he is. What he is like. What he thinks of his people. What he has done to span the chasm between him and his image bearers. What he has done to accomplish salvation for his people. That's what the Bible is about. It's the story. It's God introducing himself and what he's done to reconcile you to himself through Jesus. That's what he's revealed to you. Moses says to Israel, major on the redemption stories. Major. God's told it to you. He's revealed it to you. You don't have to ask. You don't have to hack. You don't have to sneak in some back door and steal the files. He's, he's put it all out there. Public record for you to obsess about, for you to fixate on, for you to saturate your mind with. Those things he has not revealed to you. Don't obsess about. Minor in those things. Pursue them in wisdom. Get counsel. Do all the things he's told us elsewhere. Seek advice from wise mentors. 
Check your heart. Make sure your emotions or whatever else aren't leading you astray. But major on the majors and minor on the minors. Ralph Davis uh, is a guy that I've told you I quote often in this series. He says this, this quote, this repetitive refrain from God to his people, but I will be with you. He says, basically, God has nothing else or nothing more to offer you. You can go through a lot with that promise. It does not answer your questions about details. It only provides the essential. Nothing about when or how or where or why. Only the what or better the who. But I will be with you. And that's enough. We said it last week at the end of the message, but you can either seek to know what your future holds or you can get to know the one who holds your future and holds you. And if you and I are people who are always seeking to know what the future holds, we'll continue to be anxious, faithless people who are always chasing our tails, trying to figure out what's around the corner. And we'll be people who want files from God, not God. Or we can seek to know the one who holds your future and holds you and the one who is present in your future. And you get him. The best clarity of all. And that's the kind of clarity that God offers us. It's the kind of clarity that cures mistrust. It's the kind of assurance you're allowed to ask for. It's the kind of assurance that Gideon asked for. I remember I've shared, I think I've shared this story before. Casey was making the summer conference announcement. I'll never forget this. My second year of the internship, we're down at summer conference, uh, 12 or 1300 people there from around the country and tons of amazing seminars in the morning. It's what you do. Two hours every morning, you go to these different seminars you pick from this long list. There was one seminar that was called Knowing God's Will, and they had it in the big, like, sanctuary meeting place. There was, I, I heard, 350 or 400 people there. And I'd been kind of a summer conference veteran at that point, so I'd probably been to that before or a time or two trying to figure out all my life decisions. So I went to this seminar called Knowing Jesus, and there were seven people in there. And it was heartbreaking. And I thought, this, this says everything you need to know. If we knew Jesus, if we knew this tender-hearted Savior who is powerful and a conqueror and a king and relentlessly for his people to the point of death, to the point of curse, to the point of resurrection, might we get a better night's sleep about what city you're going to move to after Athens? or whether to have that conversation with your mom or not, or whether to major in this or that. When you know the one who holds your future, you'll be amazed how little you have to know about what the future holds because you know who is there and you know what he's like and you know what he'll be doing. So forgetful and fearful Gideon is asking God to dance with him again, to see the one who holds his life in his hands. And he's saying, remind me, show me who you are. Show me that you're for me. And particularly for Gideon, he is, Gideon's mind is filled with some, who knows what gobbledygook. It's been seven years under Midianite oppression. The, the last week in, in, in uh, Judges 6, there's all this talk about God commanding Gideon. He's like, here's the first thing you're going to do. You're going to go and you're going to topple all the idols to Baal, all the Asherah poles, all these symbols of these false gods. You're going to go knock them down. 
And the, the signs that Gideon is specifically asking for God, he's not just saying, God, part the skies and tell me who you are again. He's all this stuff about dew and wetness and like blankets and whether they're dry or wet in the morning. It's significant that Baal was the God in charge, quote unquote, in charge or seen as in charge in this land of the rain, of the dew, of water. So Gideon is asking something more specific than just this generic, remind me that you're God. He's saying, remind me that you're God in this place, in this scene, in this moment, in this land, in this scenery that I'm stuck in. Show me that you rule, not this idol that is cursing me, saying, if I leave it, I'm doomed. I was talking uh, to Dylan this morning, and it got me thinking about just uh, idolatry is such a slippery concept. We've talked about that before. It's so deceptive and delusional. It's just so hard for us to get a grip on even understanding it. But we had a helpful conversation. I was just tossing this around with him and just coming to the greater and greater clarity about what some of my idols are. And they're the things that when they're present in my life, I feel safe. They're the things that when I don't have them, they curse me. One of my greatest idols is preparation. Friends, I'll tell you, I have not stood up here a single night in two years feeling prepared. It curses me. Every Wednesday night. And it says, you don't have enough of me. Spend more time. Read more. Pray more. Understand it better. Articulate it better. That is oppression. It is slavery. Do you see how idolatry works? It promises the world to you. If you prepare enough, imagine what life will be like. If you're certain enough, if certainty is your idol. If you're comfortable enough, if you are in control enough. And you get to be the helicopter mom one day or the helicopter dad who's in control of every detail of your child's uncontrollable life. It promises you the world and it takes your soul and your life in the process. Jesus loves Gideon. God is saving Gideon from this mess, from this nightmare, from this curse. And that's why Gideon is asking these specific weird questions about wet blankets or dry blankets. He's saying, are you stronger than Baal? Can I be happy and not be prepared? Can I be effective and fruitful and not have certainty? That's what Gideon wants to know. Can I go and do what you've called me to do with all of these other voices chattering around me saying, if you don't have me, you're nothing and you're nobody and you don't matter. And God proves to him not once, not twice, but three times, really a fourth time with the dream in the Midianite camp. Four times, God stoops to what you would think he would dismiss as a silly question. Gideon, believe in me already. What's up with you? Three signs? That's what we often think about God. As on my, whatever, 68th night or whatever, I'm still thinking I'm cursed because I'm not prepared enough. And he stoops down. He says, you want to dance? You want to know who I am again? You want to know that I'm with you, that I'm for you? That's the questions Gideon was asking. I've shared this before too. Psalm 35 is something that St. Augustine was quoting when he wrote this in the early pages of his diary. Psalm 35 says, Say to me, O Lord, I am your salvation. Augustine wrote about it. O Lord, my God, tell me what you are to me. Say to my soul that you're my salvation. And say it so I can hear it. You could tell Augustine couldn't hear it. Say it so I can hear it. Get through to me. 
My heart is listening, Lord. Open up the ears of my heart and say to my soul, I am your salvation. And let me run toward this voice and seize hold of you. Christian, did you know that you're allowed to ask God for reassurance of his love for you? Did you know that you're allowed to ask him to show you again that he's for you? You are allowed to do that. God accommodates Gideon's request so tenderly and so mercifully. And he gets down on his knees and he says to Gideon, Gideon, yes, I'm bigger than your idols. Yes, I'm bigger than the Midianites. These things you think are going to wipe you off and be the end of your story. Yes, this is just one little scene embedded in this big, big story. That is God clarifying himself. That is what delivers us out of mistrust of him into greater and greater assurance to him. That's how you begin to remember how the story began at God's initiative, not yours, by his grace, not your work. That's how you remember where your story is going. The renewal of all things and the renewal of you. You'll be good one day. And you're on your way there now. If you're in Christ. The last thing that I just want to barely mention, and we'll come back to this next week as we hit Gideon again in in later chapter 7 and chapter 8, is following God. And this is pretty simple and pretty brief. Once you have seen God again, once you've been reassured in who he is, that he's for you, that he's with you, once you remember whatever scene that you're in right now is embedded in this great, epic, grand, magnificent story of Jesus saving sinners and changing them in this life. Once you see that, you'd be amazed how it begins to move our feet. And this is what amazes me. God still calls Gideon into battle. He still, call, he still calls him in the battle. Sometimes we kind of like think tank this stuff to death. We sit in sermons, we sit in messages, we go to small groups, and we're on this never-ending road of diagnosis. I struggle with that too. Why do you think we fall into this? Yeah, we fall into that. that. And then we go home and we don't engage in the battle. God will show himself to you. He will show you who he is. And when you're done with the conversation, there'll be a sword sitting at your feet. There'll be a shield, or in this case, a clay pot and a ram's horn. And he'll say, are you ready? Let's run towards these bullets. Let's take this hill. Forward, onward, I am with you. How many battles do we leave unengaged because we think all God is interested in doing is like clarifying our mental process? You know the book of James. Faith without works is not faith at all. Feet that are still reveal faith that's stagnant. The way you know someone knows their God is they move toward things that they think are dangerous and risky, especially things that they think will topple They're precious idols. That's how you know someone has a big God and sees him as he is. That's how you know someone's dancing with him and is moving towards these things. Friends, God is committed to deepening your confidence in him because that is where freedom is and that is where joy is and that is where peace is. 
Where we will pick up this story next week is what does that battle actually feel like? What is it like? What battle has the Lord equipped you for? And why does he do this thing from 32,000 resources to fight the battle that you now feel more confident to engage in? And he whittles it down 99% lower to 300 resources to fight these battle with. But know this, that this God is committed to his people and he's committed to your liberty and he's committed to your freedom. And he's not just trying to inspire us to watch him fight, but he has resurrected his people and united you to the Lord Jesus Christ, the conqueror and the king who is committed to fighting your battles for you, but also with you alongside of him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the sign of all signs we heard last week is you on a cross. That's the commitment. That's the proof. It's the smoking gun that you're for us, that you're for sinners. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not give us also all things we're needful of? Pray that when we think about these things, when we think about the story that we're in, we would see you as the hero to the story and even dark scenes like your day on the cross embedded in this story of resurrection and new life and reconciliation. God, open our eyes, dance with us, remind us that it is you who is with us, you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.